Welcome to the About Health and Hormones podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Allen, a recovered sugar addict turned certified nutrition coach on a mission to help women learn how to balance their hormones and optimize their fertility. On this podcast, we have conversations with experts about all things health, hormones, wellness, nutrition, and more to give you the information, tips, and tricks you need to take control of your health and feel amazing in your body. I am so happy that you're here and I can't wait to dive in. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to the show. I'm so happy to have you here and we have a great episode coming up. This episode is all about fertility myths that are not helping you get pregnant. And I'm so excited to bust through these myths because I just feel like these are things that I wish so badly that I knew back when I was trying to get pregnant for the first time. And when I was trying to get pregnant for the first time, basically the only advice that I was going off of was get off the pill, stop using birth control and just try to get pregnant, which is kind of a really passive approach towards getting pregnant. It's not very proactive and it didn't serve me so well. It left me feeling really confused, really anxious. I was worrying a lot. I know that totally works for some people, but listen, I work with a lot of people where that strategy does not work for us. Um, And I think part of that is because the education and understanding of how our fertility actually works, how our eggs are made and how they mature, how our hormones work to support fertility are so crucial towards helping us get pregnant. And even if you're not someone with a diagnosed issue, um, if you're not someone who's struggled to get pregnant in the past, I think there's just so much empowerment that comes from actually understanding how your fertility works. And because there is so much information out there and so much misinformation out there, I really wanted to do an episode where we bust through the myths. And I can just tell you from my own personal experience, that first time around where I was trying to get pregnant was such a nightmare. It was just me stuck in these loops of anxiety and wondering when is it going to happen and constantly trying to calculate, okay, if it happens at this time, I'm going to have a due date around this. And like, this is how I would plan my birth. If it's going to be in February or in March. And then when I didn't get pregnant, I was like always constantly moving up my due date. And I felt like such an idiot every time I had a negative pregnancy test or ended up getting my period and wasn't pregnant. And that led not only to me not getting pregnant for a long time, but it led me to having a really, really strained relationship with my body and with myself because I just felt like my body was always failing me. I felt like something was wrong with me. I felt very anxious socially in my marriage. There were just so many different ways that this was affecting my life. And then after I ended up learning a lot about how food can help my body optimize fertility, how food can help me heal PCOS, and I got pregnant, thank God, Fast forward a little bit when I was ready to start trying again, I had a completely different experience. So when my daughter was, I think around like 15, 16 months, I started getting ready to think about trying for another one. And I said, you know, before I actually start actively trying, I really want to just get my body ready and go like a hundred percent in. I want to do everything that I possibly can for my fertility, everything from nutrition to the right exercise, to supplements, to acupuncture, to really tracking my cycle and doing fertility awareness method. And I felt like with all these different tools that I was able to utilize, 
not only did I end up, thank God, getting pregnant pretty quickly when I was ready to try, it happened on the second try, but my mental state throughout that period was completely different. I won't say I was a hundred percent at peace because there's still, you know, part of this that's out of our control, but I felt like 98% I was at peace with what I was doing. And I felt so much like I know what I could do to optimize my fertility. I know different steps that I could take. I know how to make decisions every single day that are getting me closer towards preparing my body for a baby. And that knowledge in and of itself was so, so helpful for me. And I actually look back on the time when I was trying to get pregnant for the second time as a really good time in my life. I was in the best shape I've ever been. I felt amazing. My energy was super high because when you're taking steps to optimize your fertility, you're just taking steps that actually boost your overall health. And the comparison between the first time trying to get pregnant and the second time trying to get pregnant was literally night and day for me because I really believe just having this knowledge and putting it into action makes all the difference. And I really also appreciated that I was doing my those things for myself at that time, the second time around. Like I was taking the steps to eat healthy and exercise and do the acupuncture and reduce stress. I was taking all of those steps, not only to help prepare my body as an environment for a future baby, but really to prepare myself. And I think now that I'm a mom, I tap into that in a very different way where I just see it takes a lot to be a mom and to run a business and to take care of my health. And in order to be able to do all of those things, I need to feel good in my body and I deserve to feel good in my body. And that's also what this really comes down to. So I really want to give you guys some excellent tips, bust through some myths because there's a lot of misinformation out there. That's what we're going to do in this episode. Stay tuned until the end of the episode when I'll tell you also a little bit about how you could take this further if you're looking for even more practical guidance on how to optimize your fertility. All right, so let's get into it. The first myth that I want to bust through is the myth that you can get pregnant at any time. Okay, (laughs) this is not true. I don't know where this myth comes from. I don't know if it's like a media thing, something that people have learned in really bad sex ed classes in high school, but we cannot get pregnant at any time. In fact, there's really only a 12 to 24 hour window when getting pregnant can take place. Now, our fertile window is actually a little bit longer than that. Um, It's usually like four to five days because if you have sex anytime during your fertile window when you're producing cervical mucus, sperm can survive for up to five days. And then as long as it's alive while you're ovulating, you don't necessarily have to actively try to get pregnant within those 12 to 24 hours of ovulation. But outside of those five fertile days of your cycle, you cannot get pregnant. And I know for me and many other Orthodox Jewish women were also taught that the ideal time to try is around the mikvah, which for most people, you're going around day 12 or 13 of your cycle, which for some people that is right around when they ovulate, that does fall within their fertile window. But for many women, especially women with an irregular cycle or women who have PCOS or women with short cycles who might be ovulating even earlier than that, Um, that's not great advice for us because then we're not trying at the right time. And now that I know this, I literally think back to when I was trying to get pregnant the first time. And it's almost, I almost laugh at myself. Like I was basically essentially doing the same thing as if I was trying to get pregnant all by myself, like without having any other partner there to help fertilize me. That's basically what trying to get pregnant outside of your fertile window is. It's that crazy. It will not happen. You need to be 
in your fertile window and having sperm meet the egg within your fertile window or else you will not get pregnant. And it's really crazy that women don't know this because this to me is like basic, basic, basic. When you learn how to recognize your fertile window, you can just save yourself so much time. I mean, I know that I was trying at the wrong time when I was trying to get pregnant for the first time for months and months and months. And I was always trying to figure out, well, when am I ovulating? After about eight months, I started using OPKs, which are ovulation predictor kits. They're like those little sticks that you pee on and they tell you when in your cycle you're ovulating, except that they don't really tell you that. They Actually, what they do is they predict when your ovulation is coming. So they detect what's called an LH surge, uh, an increase in your luteinizing hormone which usually precedes ovulation, but it doesn't always precede ovulation. And again, if you have any kind of hormone imbalance, sometimes your your body is trying to ovulate and it's gearing up to do it, but it doesn't quite get there for whatever reason. It could be from stress. It could be from lack of sleep. It could be because your eggs are not mature enough. But either way, you could get a false positive with an OPK and be trying at the wrong time, which is super, super frustrating. So this is a pretty simple one to solve. The best way that I would recommend tracking your fertile window is to learn the basics of the fertility awareness method. I actually did a whole episode on this with Talia Schubert. You can go back and listen to that. It's episode two and I'll link it in the show notes, but you can learn how to track your cervical mucus, how to use basal body temperature to confirm ovulation. And it's a little bit more complicated to use the fertility awareness method as birth control. And when you're using it for birth control, there's very little room for error. You want to be super, super on top of it. But when you're using it to try to identify your fertile window, I think it's much easier. It's a little bit more forgiving because if you have, you know, a false positive thinking you're fertile when you're actually not, okay. So you tried at the wrong time. Um, as opposed to if you're thinking that you're not fertile when you're using it as birth control and then having an accidental pregnancy. It's a very different situation, but I would absolutely recommend learning that method over using the ovulation predictor kits, just because they're often not correct, especially for those of us with irregular cycles. And knowing this, that you can't get pregnant at any time, I think is the most basic first thing that every single woman should know. And you can just save yourself so much time by learning how to identify your fertile window and actually trying at the correct time in your cycle. And the reason for this is twofold. Number one, you're actually gonna have a much higher chance of conception if you're trying during your fertile window. And number two is that it helps you kind of know what to expect going forward in terms of when you should take a pregnancy test, when you can expect your period. I know that for me, when it was, let's say day 30, 35 of my cycle, I'd start taking pregnancy tests and see negative, 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 which was really mentally traumatizing um, and very emotionally painful and stressful and horrible. But part of what's so crazy is I'm thinking back now, I hadn't even ovulated when my PCOS was really in the thick of it. And I was having these 60, 65 day cycles. I hadn't even ovulated by day 30 or 35 when I was taking pregnancy tests. And when you at least learn, oh, hey, this is when I ovulated. It's two weeks from now that I should start checking to see is my period late? Should I take a pregnancy test? You're going to save yourself a lot of mental anguish because when you start taking tests day after day, anyone who's been in that situation knows it's just, it makes you a little crazy. Um, And then you start thinking, maybe it's a false negative. Maybe I really am pregnant because I still didn't get a period. There's a lot less room for mystery and questioning when you're tracking your cycle and really knowing when your fertile window exists. 
So that's number one. You cannot get pregnant at any time. It's only within your fertile window. Number two, the myth that I want to bust is that going gluten and dairy free to reduce inflammation will help you get pregnant. Now, bear with me because there's a lot of nuance to this one. And I want to start with why this myth even exists. So for some people, gluten and dairy and multiple other foods can cause an inflammatory response in the body. And inflammation is one of the main things that affects our egg quality. Okay, we really, really need healthy robust, good quality eggs in order to have them get fertilized and be able to be viable for pregnancy. Egg quality is actually the number one reason why there's early miscarriages, or I should say poor egg quality is the number one reason why women have early miscarriages. We know that over 60% of early miscarriages are due to chromosomal abnormalities in egg quality. And the reason that inflammation is so relevant here is because when there's inflammation in the body, especially in the ovaries, there are little molecules called free radicals that basically I like to explain them as those little balls in a pinball game that are just whizzing around and zipping around, bumping into everything where you don't even have to use the buttons anymore. And they're just like zipping around all over the place. That's kind of what free radicals do. And when they bump into things, they can cause damage to whatever material they bump into, including DNA. So when there's a lot of inflammation, the egg basically, um, the egg basically produces these free radicals. It bumps into the DNA in the egg cell and it can break off or fragment or alter the chromosomes in the egg. And that's very problematic. So inflammation is absolutely a factor that's affecting our egg quality. However, gluten and dairy are not causing inflammation in every single body. And there are many ways that people go gluten and dairy free in the wrong way that actually don't reduce inflammation, but can actually cause more inflammation. So I want to break this down, get really, really granular here. And first, we're going to just talk about what these substances are and why they are inflammatory for some people. So we're going to start with gluten. Gluten is a substance that's found on certain grains, things like wheat, barley, uh, spelt, farro, a bunch of other grains have it too. And it's made of two different proteins. One of those proteins is called gliadin, okay? So people say gluten is a protein. It's really two proteins. And one of those proteins, which is called gliadin, looks like a microbe to many of our immune cells, meaning it looks like a foreign object. It looks like an enemy. And in some people's bodies, they have a negative reaction to that protein. This can happen in one of three ways. One is an allergy where you have an allergic response to it. We're not really going to get into that so much, but obviously if you have an allergy to gluten, you should not be consuming it. That could be really, really dangerous for your body. The second thing that could happen is a celiac disease response, which is where your body actually attacks its own cells in the attempt to attack the gliadin. And we'll get a little bit more into that in a second. And the third thing that can happen, which is really common for a lot of people is something called non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And this is where you're not celiac, but your body does have some sort of inflammatory reaction to the gliadin. And in that inflammatory response, it breaks down the junctions in your gut lining. Now, when we talk about the gut, we're talking about our intestines and our intestines are where we basically have digested food traveling down. We want to take the nutrients in and we want to send all the waste products on their way out of the body, usually through our bowel movements. And when we break down that cell wall or we make a little rip in the wall, which is what happens when we permeate the gut lining, 
All of a sudden, toxins that are supposed to be getting out of the body, literally supposed to be getting out through our poop, can get leaked back into our bloodstream, can be exposed to different organs, and this can cause a lot of different problems. And someone who does not test positive for celiac can still be having that kind of reaction. So for people who are celiac, one of the things that's happening here is that on gliadin, there are these little markers. Think of it as like a little stick that's coming out of the protein. And it looks very, very similar to some of the markings on our own cells. This is called molecular mimicry in biology. And basically what happens is that when your own body is like, okay, there's this substance in here. I ate a piece of bread and I see all of these markers that look really dangerous. We're going to send antibodies to attack it. Even though bread is not really, it's not an enemy. It's not like a bacteria or a virus that's trying to cause us harm, but the body doesn't really know that. And it reacts as if it is an enemy. And because there are markings on gliadin that also look very, very similar to certain markings on our own cells, sometimes our immune system can actually go off and fight our own cells. And this is what's called an autoimmune response. One place where this happens really commonly is on the thyroid. So there's a certain type of enzyme that's released by the thyroid. They're called transglutaminase enzymes, if you want to get really specific. And those have a lot of those markers that look like the same markers on the gliadin protein and gluten. And this is why for so many people who have hypo or hyperthyroidism, people who suffer from Hashimoto's or Graves' disease, they find that when they get off gluten, it makes a really big difference because their thyroid enzymes are literally being attacked when they eat gluten. Now, this is not true for necessarily every single person who has a thyroid condition, but we do know that celiac disease is between two to five times more common in people who have thyroid issues and other autoimmune diseases. So this is highly, highly relevant when it comes to someone who already has a diagnosed autoimmune condition or a thyroid condition present. And another thing that I think is worth talking about is that women who have PCOS, are at a higher rate for having a thyroid issue. So as of right now, there's a lot of controversy out there when it comes to PCOS and gluten and dairy for that matter. There has not been a single study that's shown eliminating gluten or dairy helps support PCOS. We don't have the research that shows that. What we do have research on is that women who have PCOS have a higher prevalence of undiagnosed gut issues and are more likely to have thyroid issues as well. Okay. Those are called comorbidities. When you have a certain condition, you might be more likely to have another condition along with it. And so it is worth exploring and thinking about. And in my recommendation for some people, but not all people actually trying to see, well, how does your body respond if you reduce your gluten intake or eliminate it for a certain amount of time? Do you see improvements in your symptoms? Do you see an improvement in your cycle length or your rate of ovulation or getting pregnant? Um, there's also a lot of really interesting research that's come up with infertility specifically, or women who are undergoing IVF. Um, they've basically found that a lot of women who have quote unquote, unexplained infertility have a higher rate of undiagnosed gut disorders. Um, we don't know exactly what's going on there. We don't know exactly why, but the researchers in these studies have hypothesized that when the body has this inflammatory response to the gluten it affects their rates of miscarriage. It affects their rates of egg quality. Researchers have hypothesized that the body has this inflammatory response to gluten and that's affecting their egg quality. It's affecting their ability to carry the baby. So 
this is definitely relevant um, to some people who are trying to get pregnant and are experiencing problems with pregnancy. However, there have been a lot of other studies showing that poor gut health and having a dysfunctional gut microbiome is really related to the way that we break down estrogen related to things like PCOS and endometriosis. That doesn't necessarily mean that those gut issues are coming from eating gluten or dairy. It's just worth knowing sometimes when people have these gut issues, it's worth exploring what's the root cause. Let's get in there and and really see what's going on. And for some people, eliminating gluten or dairy is a part of that healing process. Now, I want to explain how some people are doing this the wrong way, and it can actually be having a negative impact on their fertility. So gluten-free does not equal healthy, okay? What happens when we take the regular products that we eat that usually have gluten, things like cake and cookies and bread and cereal, and we try to make them gluten-free? Most of the time, what we're doing is swapping out the flour. It's usually the wheat flour that has the gluten for some other kinds of non-gluten containing flour. And that can look like rice flour. It can look like potato starch, cornstarch, tapioca starch, all sorts of different things that are used to try and make the food have a really similar texture and a similar taste, but not actually contain the gluten. Now, most of these flours are not blood sugar friendly. They're also not really mimicking the texture in the same way. I'm going to take a little tangent here for a second, but if anyone here is into baking, I used to be really, really into baking back in the day. And I had this amazing book. It's called, I think it's just called the cookie book that really gets into the science of how to bake the perfect cookie. And in the book, I learned that it's really important to use a combination of regular flour and bread flour to make the perfect chocolate chip cookie. And the reason for that is because bread flour has a higher gluten content than regular white flour. And gluten is the thing that makes baked goods like cookies have their their oomph, for lack of a better word, like that chewy, thick, really good what they call mouthfeel in like the food industry that when you put it in your mouth, you're just like, oh my gosh, this this chewy, thick cookie. It's so, so good. That texture really comes from the gluten. And when we use things like potato starch or rice flour to try and imitate that, since there's no gluten in there, it doesn't really have the same effect. What we often have to do to those foods is add in some kinds of other chemical, something like an emulsifier, which changes the texture of the food a little bit. Um, They add in all these weird gums and sweeteners to try to make up for the lack of really good texture. And so these are not necessarily healthy foods. They're just as highly processed as the regular version of the cookies and the cakes and whatever. And I think it's become such a trend now to go gluten-free that so many more companies are looking to make gluten-free options. I think they came out with a line of gluten-free Oreos. Those are not a health food. Like if you're struggling with your health and your blood sugar and your hormones, I would say it's really unlikely that switching from regular Oreos to gluten-free Oreos is really going to have a massive impact on your health. The only way that you might see this play out is if you truly are celiac or you have um, a gluten sensitivity or you have an allergy, then you're able to have those foods without it directly impacting your immune system. But overall, that is not going to be good for our hormones If you want to understand more about that, go back to the episode where I talk about getting off the blood sugar roller coaster. These flowers are really, really high in carbs. They're really highly processed. They're usually just not good for us. So switching from regular 
processed food to gluten-free processed food is not the answer for us. And that's what I see a lot of people doing unknowingly, you know, having these gluten-free bagels and gluten-free this and that it's not actually helping them. Now, another thing that happens sometimes is people are trying to go gluten-free and they switch to having a lot of real whole nutrient dense foods. And they go from having muffins and cakes and cookies to having eggs and sweet potatoes and salads and soups and really good quality proteins, chicken and meat, et cetera. And they're like, well, I'm feeling so much better. It's obviously because I cut out gluten. That's not necessarily true either. It could be that when you stop eating a lot of junk and processed foods and start eating more whole, real nutrient-dense foods, that's actually why you're seeing improvements in your health, in your egg quality, in your cycles, in your mood, in your energy, et cetera. So I'm also a really big proponent. I'm not looking to encourage people to cut out food groups unnecessarily. There are people who can benefit a lot from it if it's truly causing inflammation in their bodies, but for other people, it's not. And then there's no reason to cut out healthy grains like barley or spelt. And sometimes those foods can just be a really great addition in your diet. They certainly allow for more variety. And it's just really important to know if you're going to do something or eliminate something, why are you doing it? And what are you actually looking to achieve with your health and knowing a little bit about the research behind it? Now, I want to also get into dairy because with dairy, I'm even more hesitant to talk about when people should try going dairy-free because I actually think if we look at it in general, foods that contain dairy are generally more nutrient-dense than foods that contain gluten, especially if they're full-fat dairy products or if they're fermented. So fermented means that they've allowed natural bacteria to grow in the food, things like yogurt or kefir. And these are really, really great for our gut health if they naturally contain probiotics. Another benefit that we get from dairy is that dairy is naturally packaged with healthy fats and fat-soluble vitamins. So there are certain vitamins, things like vitamin A, D, E, and K, that we can actually only absorb through our intestinal wall if we have enough healthy fat present in our bodies. If you don't have enough healthy fat in your diet, you could be eating foods that contain these vitamins and actually not be able to absorb them, which is really a bummer, right? Like, why are you eating all that broccoli and kale if you can't actually absorb the vitamins from it? So full fat dairy products naturally contain these vitamins alongside the fat, which makes them highly bioavailable. It means that it's really easy for our body to absorb them and then put them to use. So I know this sounds great, right? Why might there be issues with dairy and why will it help some people to go dairy-free if they're trying to get pregnant. So there's really conflicting research on this. I want to just present it to you, whether it affects our hormones or not, and talk about some of the issues that come up with dairy. So first of all, modern dairy farms look very, very different from the way that we made dairy products hundreds of years ago. And one of the things that happens now is that cows are given hormones to keep them lactating year round also throughout their pregnancies. And because we consume a lot of milk that's been produced during the cow's pregnancies, that milk contains much higher levels of estrogen than we were ever consuming hundreds of years ago. Because it used to be that back in the day on the farm, the farmers were not collecting milk or nursing the cows or forcing them to lactate if they were pregnant, especially second trimester going forward. So there's actually been studies showing that 60 to 80% of the estrogens in 
young women's bodies are coming from milk and dairy products in Western diets. That's really crazy. There's also studies that have shown women, sorry, not women, but girls who drink more milk in their youth get their periods earlier because we know that having a higher uh, exposure to estrogen can cause your periods to come earlier. There are also a lot of other ways that estrogen can be getting into the milk. It's not just from the cows being pregnant where they're naturally producing more estrogen, but there are certain toxins that can actually accumulate in animal fat at a higher rate than they do in other places. So when cows are eating grass, that's been covered in pesticides and herbicides, um, certain phthalates and other things that are in the soil and in the environment, those can bioaccumulate in dairy products. And we get exposed to them through consuming dairy and milk products. So the hormones are a piece that can definitely be playing a role. Another issue when it comes to inflammation in the body is that some people have an inflammatory response to the sugar in milk, which is lactose. Some people don't have enough enzymes called lactase to break down the lactose, especially us Ashkenazi Jews, right? We have a really high rate of lactose intolerance, and this can look really different for different people. It could be that you can't really tolerate any lactose. It could be that you can't tolerate a certain amount of lactose, but you could have a little bit. And this can usually cause stomach discomfort, things like gas and bloating or stomach aches. Sometimes it causes headaches for people. But if you're doing that to your body on a long-term basis and you're causing those kinds of stomach issues, that can really be affecting your long-term gut health, okay? Generally, if we're having stomach pain and gas and bloating and all those kinds of things after eating food, it's affecting our gut microbiome. It's affecting our intestinal lining. And we want to be aware of those things happening long-term because our gut health is so, so connected to our fertility and our hormonal health. Another thing that can be, another factor with dairy is that cow's milk in particular contains a certain hormone called IGF-1, which stands for insulin-like growth factor one. And this is something that acts really similarly to insulin. And we know that when we have high levels of insulin in the body, that can lead to a lot of hormonal chaos, right? I talked about that a lot in the blood sugar episode. And when we have high levels of IGF-1, we've also seen that this prevents a lot of healing pathways from taking place in the body. So there's something called apoptosis. It's really cell death or cell suicide when an unhealthy cell knows I am not working well. My chromosomes have been damaged. My mitochondria have been damaged. I need to self-destruct and get out of this body to make way for new, healthier cells. That's called apoptosis. And when we have high levels of this IGF-1, which is found in cow's milk, that can prevent apoptosis from happening, which means that unhealthy, dysfunctional cells can stay in the body. And we've seen higher levels of this have been linked to things like breast cancer, uterine fibroids, and other high estrogen-related issues. The last piece I want to talk about with dairy are the proteins found in milk and other dairy products. Most of the proteins are called casins, and we'll talk about two of them. There's something called A1 casins and A2 casins. We find both of them in cow's milk, but in some other types of animals like sheep or goat's milk, we only find the A2 casins. And there's research showing that A1 casins can be inflammatory, especially for those women with endometriosis, as well as the fact that the fat in that dairy, again, can allow for more bioaccumulation of environmental toxins. And we don't see that quite as much in goat milk or sheep's milk or cheeses made from those milks. So 
that's one piece. There are definitely reasons for this myth being perpetuated that dairy is bad for our hormones. It's causing inflammation in some people's bodies. However, there's also a ton of studies that show that women who consume regular servings of full fat dairy have improved fertility and improved health markers. There was even a study done showing that women who had three servings of full fat dairy a day had improved fertility markers, such as improved ovulation and egg quality. They also had decreased menstrual pain and had reduced their risk of fibroids. So we have studies like that, which are then really promising about dairy. We also see when we look at blue zones, which are places where people are living past hundred years old and have really, really high levels of health, meaning that they're not just living to a high age, but they're living with really good health into those high ages. We see that they regularly are consuming dairy in their diets. So their research is not super clear on whether dairy is good or bad. I generally think there's not a lot of research out there that really tells us whether any food is good or bad what probably it comes down to is the nuance. What is the quality of those dairy products? Are you having you know, a good quality Greek yogurt that's coming from grass-fed cows that have eaten organic grass and lived outside and got in sunlight and don't have their babies stripped away from them? The dairy products coming from those types of animals is going to be very different from your generally processed factory farmed cow products. Also, it really depends on what's going on in your specific body. There is research showing that women who have certain types of conditions, high estrogen conditions like endometriosis or really short, really heavy periods might have a more inflammatory response or might be more sensitive to all the estrogen that's coming in through conventional dairy products. And it might be worth it for those people, again, to try and see what happens when they are not consuming as much dairy. Now, I also think the choice that you make when it comes to dairy is obviously really important. I'm not talking about consuming mozzarella sticks here. I'm talking about having really good quality, minimally processed cheeses, good quality yogurt that's not filled with sugar, a good full fat cottage cheese or milk. These can definitely have a role in our diets. And I also want to point out sometimes when people go dairy free, the same thing happens in dairy as it does with gluten. A dairy-free product is not necessarily healthier. And because dairy naturally comes with fat that makes certain things creamy and have a good texture, we need to replace those with processed chemicals when we're making dairy-free items. So you have to be careful, especially when you're looking at the milks. Almond milk is notorious for having all sorts of weird gums and emulsifiers in it. Sometimes they have to add sugar in order to make it taste more palatable because it would taste disgusting otherwise. Oat milk is another really common choice that people are asking for these days, but oat milk is totally a blood sugar spiker. It's very, very high in liquid carbs, carbs that have been broken down essentially into individual into individual sugar molecules, and they're really not blood sugar-friendly choices. So dairy-free does not equal healthy. Um, and there are many dairy products that, again, are really nutrient-dense. So it depends. And if you start cutting out gluten and dairy unnecessarily, without proper guidance, without really knowing what you're doing and without actually including more nutrient-dense foods to make up for that, meaning you have to know if you're getting rid of your dairy products, how are you supplementing with calcium? Do you know how you're going to introduce more of those really important nutrients that we find in dairy products into your diet? So you want to make sure that you're doing this with the guidance of a professional in a really smart way and also not causing yourself unnecessary stress by just cutting out foods and cutting out food groups when you don't truly need to. 
Okay. I feel like we could do an entire podcast episode just on gluten or just on dairy, but we're going to stop there for now. If you have more questions on this, if you guys want a full episode on gluten or dairy, definitely let me know. I have been loving your feedback from the podcast and you can reach out to me on Instagram. You can email me. All my information is in the show notes. So definitely tell me if you have questions about any of that. All right. The third myth is that you can just get off the pill and start trying. Now, there are women who totally get off birth control pills and get pregnant right away. Listen, there are some people who even get pregnant while they're on birth control pills. But if you have been on birth control for a significant amount of time, I'm talking six months, a year, maybe five or 10 years, because I know some women, especially those with irregular periods or women who struggled with acne when they were young, got on the pill when they were in their teens and have been on it for many years or even decades, you need to prepare your body for coming off of the pill. And there are a few reasons for this. So number one, there have been studies that show that being on hormonal birth control pills has a negative impact on ovarian volume and on anti-malarian hormone, which is AMH. That's only one hormone that's used to assess fertility and ovarian reserve. It's not a complete picture of your fertility, but we have definitely seen that the pill does have at least short-term effects on our fertility. So there have also been studies that definitely show long-term negative effects have not been found from taking birth control pills on our fertility. But I do want people to be aware. It's very, very likely that there is a short-term effect. And for some people who are like, okay, I really want to try and get pregnant in June. I'm going to get off the pill in May and hopefully get pregnant in June. And many, many women take time for their bodies to recover after being on birth control. One of the reasons for this is because there are certain nutrient depletions that happen when you're on the pill. And for many different reasons, when you're on birth control pills, you have a reduced absorption of certain vitamins that play a really big role in fertility and in ovulation. So some of the things that are included there are B vitamins, specifically your folic acid, B2, B6, B12, vitamin C and E, and certain minerals like magnesium, selenium, and zinc. This can have a lot of effects on your mood, on your mental health, on your energy, on your hormones in general. But in terms of egg quality and the hormones that support ovulation, like progesterone and that support pregnancy, these are really, really, really important minerals and vitamins. Now it takes our body about three months to actually have an egg fully mature. So when you ovulate, let's say in December, that egg that you're ovulating in December really started maturing back at like the end of August, beginning of September. And so what you've done for the last three to four months before you have that that ovulation is really, really important and what contributes to the quality of that egg. And that includes everything from what you eat to exercise, sleep, stress, exposure to toxins, et cetera. And that's one reason that I really recommend women taking at least three months from birth control to trying to actively get pregnant and really using at least three months to work on their diet, to supplement properly, to really work on reducing their stress and reduce inflammation in the body in order to bump up your egg quality as much as possible. If you're looking for more information on that, I have a whole ebook that I wrote about how to boost your egg quality. It's free when you go to my website, you can download it. Um, and you'll see a lot more specific recommendations in terms of foods that boost your egg quality, foods that contain these vitamins and minerals, as well as certain supplements that are really beneficial for bumping up your egg quality, especially after you've been on birth control pills. 
And I just remember back when I was trying to get pregnant for the first time, I was always a good student. Okay. I was the type that like, you know, I would want to do my homework in advance and want to do my research. So when I was preparing to get off of the pill, I went to my doctor and I asked about getting lab work done and, you know, is there anything I should know or anything I should be doing? And she was just like, no, just stop taking birth control and try. And then if it doesn't work within 12 months, you know, you'll come back. And I think back to that now, and I'm really angry about that advice. I think that is just terrible, terrible advice for women because there's so much that we could be doing in between getting off of the pill and trying to improve our egg quality and improve our fertility, including things like this, just replenishing the nutrients that are not being absorbed when you're on the pill is relatively easy. You could do this honestly with a really good multivitamin. And that's just something that I feel disappointed. I feel really disappointed that I wasn't told that. And that's why I'm busting through these myths. That's why I'm telling you because I feel like it will hopefully save at least some of you time. And that leads me to the last myth that I want to talk about, which is that after one year of trying, if you don't conceive, you are infertile or you can be diagnosed with quote unquote infertility. And I just want to say, I really hate that word. Like I think the word infertile is I have so many negative connotations with it because when I got my diagnosis of PCOS and was told that I would not be able to get pregnant naturally, I think it caused such a deep trauma in my body that I've recovered a lot from, but it took a very, very long time. And I'm not sure that it's something that I've completely recovered from. Even after having had two natural pregnancies and babies, it's it cuts into a woman in the deepest way when you tell her, no, you can't get pregnant. And a lot of the times, this is not even true. There is a very, very, very small percentage of the population that is truly sterile. And these include people who have genetic conditions like, you know, a Turner's syndrome or Klinefelter syndrome type of thing, things that are extremely rare. People who are born with certain structural abnormalities, like if you're born without a uterus or ovaries, okay, you might not be able to get pregnant naturally, or you still might be able to get pregnant with certain treatments depending on what your issue is. But to say that someone is infertile, like they're literally not capable of fertility is really not an accurate description of what's going on here. One in eight couples seeks help from fertility treatments because they're not getting pregnant within 12 months. That's like 12.5% of the population. 12.5% of the population is not sterile, okay? They're experiencing what I would call suboptimal fertility, meaning that there are different factors related to their fertility that is not optimal. It doesn't mean that it can't be fixed or improved with different types of treatments or diet and lifestyle factors. But to say that people who haven't conceived within a year are infertile, I mean, I could just tell you, I have worked with so many women who have been given this diagnosis of secondary infertility, unexplained infertility, infertility related to ovulation disorders, it's not true. They are fertile. It could be that they're struggling from inflammation in the body or a gut issue, or they're not ovulating for some reason. It could be due to high stress. It could be due to undernourishment because sometimes that happens if we're actually not eating enough and we're not producing enough estrogen that can prevent a woman's body from ovulating. And there are also things that come up on the man's side, by the way, things that are affecting testosterone levels and sperm counts and quality. There are so many reasons in our modern, modern lives where we're experiencing suboptimal fertility on both sides. Sometimes, by the way, that might not even be the case. They're just trying at the wrong time. I could actually tell you this is kind of a funny story. 
I have one of my mom's friends is an OBGYN. And I used to always ask her when I was much younger, before I was ever thinking about getting pregnant myself, like what are some of the craziest cases that you've seen or patients who come in with the craziest stories. And she said she actually sees, unfortunately, a lot of couples coming in who are struggling to get pregnant. And she asked them a little bit about, you know, what they're doing when they try to get pregnant. And she said, unfortunately, there are people who are so unfamiliar with basic anatomy. They are not actually having sex in the right way. Like they're trying in the wrong way and they're putting things in the wrong places because they have not learned properly about anatomy. And they're not going to get pregnant if they are not having vaginal sex and putting sperm into the vagina where it can meet with an egg. And so there are certain things that I just think are so crazy. And I know that's like probably not the majority of people who are just trying in the wrong way. But I remember when I was trying to get pregnant, like that was a thought that crossed my mind. Like, what is wrong with me? Maybe I'm not even trying in the right way, even though I have like, I know what basic anatomy is, but I was just like, I don't even know what's happening. And I think when we don't have access to this kind of education, it leads people to thinking crazy thoughts like what's wrong with me? What's wrong with my body? Maybe I don't have a uterus or ovaries or certain things, even though I got an ultrasound done. And I know that there are also women who are struggling with structural abnormalities that can be solved really easily with fertility treatments. Um, Someone reached out to me recently on Instagram and she said, you know, I was going through the whole process of doing ovulation inducing treatments. And I was begging my doctor to check my fallopian tubes first. And they didn't, we did a few rounds of Clomid and Letrozole before finally checking her tubes and seeing that she had blocked fallopian tubes. And that was something that she was, and she ended up being able to correct really easily. And again, these are just things that like, we're not taught to think about. We're not always getting the best advice from our doctors because there's a certain protocol that they follow. I know actually this is definitely not the case with all doctors. My doctor was very much like, we're not starting you on treatments until we check your fallopian tubes. And just a side note, that was the most painful procedure I've ever done in my life. I've had two natural labors and births and they don't even compare at all to how painful the fallopian tube test was. Um, But at least thank God I had a doctor who made me rule that out before starting me on fertility treatments. Not every doctor is even doing that. And I want to also say while we're on the subject of fertility treatments, even when women are informed to start fertility treatments after 12 months of trying, unfortunately, these treatments do not treat the root cause. And so usually women are advised to start with different types of treatments, whether it's ovulation-inducing drugs like Clomid or Letrozole, IUI, which is intrauterine insemination, or IVF, which is in vitro fertilization. And these are not things that actually correct the underlying issue when people are not getting pregnant in those 12 months. So I think that's the number one thing we need to look at. If you've been trying for 12 months and you haven't gotten pregnant yet, why? Do you have an irregular cycle? Is there any sign that you're not ovulating? If you're not ovulating, Why? If you're ovulating infrequently, why? Do you have a low thyroid function? Do you have excess estrogen or low progesterone? And if any of those things are happening in the body, we need to look at why they're happening. Because even if you do something, let's say like IVF, where you could screen for good quality eggs, even if you introduce bioidentical hormones, like if someone's low in progesterone, you could give them progesterone shots. Why are the ovaries not producing progesterone in the first place? That tells us something is not right in the body. Something is out of alignment. And very often there are things that you could do to improve those root causes and correct the issues so that your body is 
naturally supporting itself in this very, very draining, intense activity of ovulating and supporting a pregnancy and a baby growing for nine months. I find that it's also very rare that diet and lifestyle are ever mentioned at this point when people go in for that post 12 months of trying appointment, other than maybe the doctor will say, oh, you just need to relax a little bit. You're so stressed, which is really not such helpful advice for most women who are struggling to get pregnant. And diet and lifestyle are the two biggest factors that play a role in our egg quality because they affect our mitochondrial functioning. They affect our chromosomal abnormalities or good quality chromosomes and DNA in the egg quality. And this myth this really, you could hear it. Like I'm getting worked up because it just gets under my skin. It's just not true. I have seen so many women who have been gotten. It's just not true. I have worked with so many women at this point who told me that they were advised by their doctors to get certain fertility treatments to get pregnant. And they came to me as a last resort because they were really nervous about starting treatments. And that's another thing, by the way, a lot of these treatments are really invasive. They're painful. They come with side effects. Depending on where you live and what your insurance situation is, they could be really expensive. And I know for me, when I was starting the process of getting ready to do fertility treatments, this might sound really trivial to people, but honestly, I was so, so nervous about what would happen with work. At the time I was working as a teacher, I had to be at work by like 7.45 a.m. because the kids were really arriving around then. And we started teaching at 8 a.m. And I was supposed to have to go into the lab five mornings a month. The labs here are only open from like seven to eight and get ultrasound and blood work done. And I was just thinking like, how, how am I going to do this without telling my boss and without telling my coworkers? And this might not be a worry in every single job. Maybe if you have a more flexible job where you're like, okay, I would be able to just come in a little bit late. No one would really mind. I could stay a half hour late if I come in a little bit late. But for me, I was like, you can't not show up to teaching your class without people knowing. And it really affects other people's schedules if someone needs to constantly cover you. And even though I think legally, you don't have to disclose that you're doing fertility treatments, I knew that people would either figure it out really clearly, like why would I ever not come to work five mornings a month? I was the type of person who came to work with the flu, which was not healthy and not a good precedent to sense. But like I came to work. I never missed work. I was not late. I did not take many sick days in my four years of teaching. And I was so worried about this. Like everybody's going to know I'm going to have to have a really uncomfortable conversation with my boss because these fertility treatments are really time consuming. Whereas when I was making diet and lifestyle changes, that was mostly being done in like my privacy. I was doing it at home. Even if I was eating lunch at work, it wasn't like everyone was looking at what I was eating and noticing, Ooh, what's Lauren eating? Like, is this related to your fertility? You know, no one was thinking about that. And I really think for a lot of women, going through treatments can be a really traumatic process. And I've worked with a lot of women who say, listen, obviously if that's what I have to do, that's what I'm going to have to do. And that's what I thought also, like if I have to do treatments, I will, I'm dying to be a mom. I want to build a family. I'll do whatever I have to do, whatever it takes. But let me try this as a last resort to try and have it happen naturally. And I've seen women with PCOS, with endo, with thyroid issues, with age-related infertility, with long cycles, with short cycles, with all sorts of things, with thin uterine linings, with missing periods, with histories of fertility treatments and recurrent miscarriages and secondary infertility. I have seen women in all of these cases get pregnant naturally within three to six months of making changes. Now, not every single person I've worked with has responded that quickly, especially when someone has a more severe complication or condition. It can take closer to a year, especially if someone's period has really gone missing. 
Um, but sometimes I work with women who also choose to pursue treatments if they have a really serious complication and they do this alongside treatments to improve their chances of these treatments working, because that was another thing that I was really shocked to find out when I was going through the whole process. A lot of these treatments don't have super high rates of efficiency. And sometimes the rates that are told to you, like the success rates of, oh, this is how many percent of women get pregnant on Clomid or through IVF. Those statistics can sometimes represent pregnancies, not live births. And obviously anyone who is going through fertility treatments is not just looking to get pregnant. They are looking to have a healthy pregnancy and a healthy baby. And God forbid, if those treatments result in pregnancy, but also that pregnancy is not viable and it ends in miscarriage, that's not what we're looking for. So it's just so, so important for women to have access to this information to also know that if you've been trying for 12 months and you haven't gotten pregnant, statistically, it is very unlikely that something is actually wrong with your body to the point where you're sterile and not capable of having a baby. Um, it's much more likely that you're experiencing this suboptimal fertility. And there are many, many things that you could do and steps that you could take to optimize your fertility. And I want to say, I know that this might sound really harsh for some people, especially if you're in the midst of this and going through it. And I want to also say, I'm not against fertility treatments at all. I think they're an amazing, amazing feat of medical technology. There are also women who truly need them. There are women who are experiencing genetic issues that they need to select an embryo that doesn't carry certain genetic conditions. There are women who want to freeze their eggs and preserve their fertility for those reasons. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I have no judgment. I have nothing against it. I just know as a woman who was in that position, who was being told I would need to go down that path to build my family, it was really, really scary. I'm someone who's petrified of needles. I don't like being in the doctor's office and it doesn't feel empowering. That's one thing that I hear from a lot of the women I work with, that even if it feels like you're taking active steps to get pregnant when you're going through fertility treatments, it's not empowering. You're like a patient who's just laying there and waiting and waiting and hoping, but like there's so much confusion and there's so many different factors going on that you don't have control over. And I do think that when you really learn what's going on with your fertility, how you can optimize it, one of the most valuable things that you get from that is the sense of empowerment and agency in your fertility journey. I've had so many clients tell me, Lauren, this education, just knowing this, even if I didn't make any changes, it was priceless. It helped me make so many decisions going forward on my fertility journey when it comes to trying for my next kid. Um, it helps so many women navigate their fertility journeys with much more ease, with much more empowerment. And I really think as women, this is a big part of our lives. The process of getting pregnant, building a family, if that's what you want to do, like this is a major, major life phase that affects us so deeply, like beyond just our body and our bones and our blood and our uterus. It's like on a soul level, becoming a mother and building your family. It's such a significant piece of our lives. And that's why I really think when you're able to just have access to a little bit more information to help you go through that in a more easeful, a more empowered, a more educated way, it can really make all the difference on your fertility journey. And I actually just taught a free masterclass on this on four steps that you can take to optimize your fertility. 
You can actually still catch the replay. It's going to be available until December 31st. So I will put the link in the show notes if you want to go deeper. And I will say the feedback, honestly, from the masterclass was amazing. People told me this is the most I've ever learned about my body in my entire life in this one hour class. And the goal of that class was really to give people tangible steps and takeaways of what you could be doing right now to be optimizing your fertility. And I also, as I said in that class, if you want to go deeper, if you're like, listen, I really want to just go about this journey, knowing that I'm doing all that I can do, knowing that I feel like I've got a plan, I'm being proactive about helping set my body up for pregnancy properly, then I really want to invite you into the Empowered Path to Pregnancy, which is my signature 10-week program. We are reopening. I'm so, so excited about it. And if you haven't already heard me talk about this course, it is the course that I wish that I had when I was trying to get pregnant. It is the course that I will follow again to a T when I'm trying for the next one because it is the most comprehensive course that literally helps you set up your body for fertility from every single angle. And the way that it works is that it's a 10-week program. Each week, you get access to a different module that covers a different topic on fertility that you really want to know in order to optimize your fertility. So we cover everything from how to balance your hormones through balancing your blood sugar to how to boost your egg quality through specific vitamins and minerals that are good for your egg quality. There's a module on how to reduce inflammation in order to help protect your egg quality. Um, We even talk about things like how to identify your fertile window. There's a module on sperm health. There's a module on stress prevention because stress is another thing that's really affecting our fertility. And it's something that I feel like a lot of doctors will tell you just relax, which is not super helpful advice for someone who is type A and trying to get pregnant and has been like planning their whole life around hopefully being a mother. And, you know, that advice was just really unwelcome when I got it, when I was going through the rough parts of my fertility journey. But what I do believe is that we can add in different activities that we know through research can actually help reduce stress. And so I went in and I couldn't really find any that I loved on YouTube or anything. So I created different meditations and breathwork exercises that you could be doing to optimize your fertility. Um, We get into literally everything. Again, I'm super proud of the program. You can get all the details if you click on the link in the show notes. And if you join in December, you are going to get some really fun, really awesome bonuses. One of them is the trying to conceive lab checklist, which gives you not only the recommended full hormone panel and nutrient list that I recommend getting checked if you're trying to get pregnant, because listen, sometimes there are things going on there. Like if you have a thyroid issue or if you're low in vitamin D or something like that, that can be pretty, I don't want to say easily corrected, but through supplementation or medication can be fixed. And sometimes things just like click into place and that's all people needed in order to get pregnant. Sometimes, you know, they also need to go further with other diet and lifestyle modifications. But I feel like this is a question that I'm just getting every single week on Instagram. Like, what should I get tested? What should I ask my doctor for? And so I created a whole ebook that you get within the program of what labs to ask for, understanding your lab. So if you get like high estrogen, low testosterone, like what the different things are and what you need to know about them. So you could actually understand your lab work. I feel like I've spoken to so many women who tell me, you know, okay, they said I have high this, but like, I don't even understand what that means. I don't really understand why that's relevant. And so I really broke it down for you. 
And I think that's just like a really super helpful resource. And another awesome bonus that you'll get when you join the program is access to the Empowered Path to Pregnancy Recipe Index, which gives you over 90 fertility-friendly recipes. I do give out meal plans throughout the program. So every week you get access to another weekly meal plan where you could just click on it. It takes you right to the recipe, but the recipe index goes way beyond that. You have tons and tons of recipes that are honestly so delicious. I make a lot of these meals on the regular because they're just yummy and delicious and satisfying and good for our hormones. And I will say, I get also a lot of really good feedback about the food in the program, because listen, I always tell people like I was a foodie first before I ever cared about health. I want you to enjoy what you're eating. I want you to feel full and satisfied and feel like you have really delicious options. Otherwise it's just not possible to eat this way in a long-term consistent, sustainable way. So that's what you will get if you also join the program in December. If you have any questions, you could always message me about it and you'll find a lot more information below. And I just think one of the most important things for women is really having this knowledge and feeling like you are going forward on your fertility journey with some sense of agency and some some sense of being proactive. And I just know for me, like, when I was trying to get pregnant and everything felt so confusing and chaotic and I started to doubt my body, I was just so lost and frustrated. And then the second time around when I was trying, I felt amazing. Like it really was, I look back on that time when I was trying to get pregnant with my second baby, who's now my son, as one of the best times of my life because I felt amazing physically. I was doing all the things I needed to be doing. And kind of in the way that people treat pregnant women as like, oh, they're so special and you need to be gentle with them and, you know, holding the door open for the pregnant person or getting up for them on the bus. Like I was almost treating myself that way throughout that journey of trying to conceive. And it was such a, it was such a good time period for me to build my relationship with myself. And I just think that's also something that women really deserve. And you don't need to have a diagnosed hormone condition to participate in this program. I will say definitely the vast majority of women that I work with are people who have been struggling already for some time. But I know that there are people who tell me, listen, like I found your page or I wanted to work with you because I don't want to fall in that category. Like I don't want to be part of the one in eight who struggles with their fertility. I want to get a hang on this before I end up being in that place that feels really scary and stressful with fertility challenges. And I always say there's no glory in prevention. It doesn't make as good of a story, right? Because I have worked with people who are like, let me really get such a good handle on my diet and lifestyle habits for fertility while I'm still on the pill or while I'm still using contraception. And then they get off and they end up getting pregnant. And, you know, there's always that question of like, who knows, maybe they would have gotten pregnant right away anyways. Like, does it really sound like it's because of the diet and lifestyle? Listen, I can't tell you. I have no idea. All I know is that women who choose to go about their fertility journey that way, they feel that sense of empowerment. They feel that sense of control. And I think that's something that in and of itself is really really powerful aside from the fact that of course, getting pregnant more quickly and more easily is also just like at the end of the day, that's what a lot of people are really looking for. So if you enjoyed this episode, if you want to hear more like this, please let me know. I love hearing feedback from you guys. I also truly believe that 
this topic, you know, this is what it's all about for me. This is really what my passion is, is helping more women understand their fertility and have more information about their fertility. I'm going to ask you if you found this informative, if you think it's valuable, please, please share this episode with other people. You can post it on your story on Instagram, or you could share it in a WhatsApp group. Um, I just think that these are the kinds of things that literally could change people's lives if they understood their fertility more. And you don't know, maybe someone sees this and they click on the masterclass and they're like, oh my gosh, I didn't know there were all these things I could be doing. And, you know, like by this time next year, they could have a baby. Who knows? So I really, really always appreciate when people share about the podcast and give me feedback. Thank you guys so much for being here and for listening. And I will be back next week with another great episode. So I hope you all, wherever you are, you're having a great day. You're taking care of your health and I wish you all the best. Thank you so much for listening to the About Health and Hormones podcast. If you loved today's episode, I would love to know. Please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so I can make this podcast even better for you all. I would love to connect with you. Follow me on Instagram at Lauren Allen Nutrition or head to my website, www.laurenallennutrition.com to learn about my coaching programs and stay up to date on all of my latest workshops and courses. I am so glad you are here today and I wish you all health and happiness.